Welcome to Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. This month's episode is From Ruin to Renewal, which is about the themes of destruction and reconstruction. I'm Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone, here again with my esteemed colleague, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. Great to be with you again. Great to be with you again. For this seventh episode, we're going to answer the question of the week, talk about what we've been watching or reading since our last episode, and a bit of news. And then we'll return to our main topic, From Ruin to Renewal. And then for our final segment from the Geniza, we'll dust off one of our favorites from the past. So let's start us off with our question of the week. Our question this week what has been a significant period of renewal or reconstruction in your life? So I've been thinking about the times when I've moved in my childhood in particular. We moved every three or four years for a number of years. And every move was a kind of destructive transition, you know, pulling up stakes, packing up a house, leaving behind school, friends, neighborhoods, moving to a new city and starting all over again. The big ones were moving from Peoria, Illinois to Los Angeles, California, which was a very disruptive move, but an important move for my long-term life. My move to college, move to rabbinical school, and a number of professional moves. Although each move feels less and less destructive, as I've learned, I don't actually have to change everything. They don't feel nearly as disconnecting as it did when I was a kid. We also have Facebook, email, texting. I can maintain connections with people from a number of previous places I've lived. But each of those moves were definitely periods of you know, uprooting, moving, beginning all again, starting over, always difficult. So I feel like this theme sort of like has hit in my life a number of times. How about you? Yeah, so one of the reasons why I resonate so much with this theme is that it's something that I think about a lot and how we're all constantly in some kind of period of renewal and reconstruction, but you don't necessarily know it until you've gotten a little bit of, of distance from things. So I, I would say a couple of examples for me, certainly becoming a parent when right. I was in rabbinical school was, was one of those things where it was suddenly, you know, all of the Everything is now needing to be reorganized and reoriented in terms of, you know, how do you just go about your your day-to-day -day existence? What are your priorities? What are the different factors that you have to consider creating, you know, and rebuilding a new identity for myself as a parent? And that took time and was not something that that kind of happened overnight. And then just having to renegotiate you know, every other part of your, your life in relationship to that working and navigating all of your other relationships all, you know, have different dimensions as well as, as that goes on. And then, you know, as it's never, 
never a complete process, right? Because I'm experiencing this now of a, a transition, you know, as, as kids go through different developmental stages, you're still having to renegotiate all of those things. And it's like all of the things that I figured out, okay, I went through this intense process with infants and toddlers and learning how to kind of manage that. And that all changes as kids get older and are more independent in some ways and life is just structured around school or, or other activities in different kinds of ways. And so I'm just recently been in this wake up moment of being like, oh, I just went on a trip, for example, and both of my kids, they can both actually walk through an airport carrying their own bag. Maybe they complain the whole time, but <laughs> they can do it. And it's like, oh, yeah. I mean, we had a pause air travel for a few years because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a very different thing when you have strollers and all of the other stuff and trying to physically pick up people and carry them <laughs> places. Right, they're more like um, traveling companions now. Sort of. We're moving in that direction, but it's it's really different. And also recognizing with my eight-year-old, what can you do now? I was traveling solo with them and he's a little old to go in the women's bathroom with me. Mm. And like, do we feel comfortable? Like you going in, you know, the bathroom by yourself and can you wait out here and not feel anxious? And I'm trying to remember some of my own childhood. When was I allowed to do certain things independently? And so that's an another element of this too both the child perspective and the parent perspective when do you take on new things and of course the pandemic in a lot of ways was a big period of of reconstruction i mean for me thank god my family and close people that are close to me all made it through and people were relatively healthy and for me in a lot of ways it was difficult but then like ultimately positive experience of being able to focus on what's important in my rabbinic role and what's needed right now and we're all going through this really intensive experience it really enabled me to step into my role as a rabbi in a new way. I was only out of rabbinical school about almost two years at that point. So very, very new <laughs> rabbi and like having to say, what do we need to do in this moment was a dramatic way of, of we all had to adapt. Mm-hmm. I came out of that experience within a couple of months of feeling much more empowered. Even though it was awful, the results and the growth positive. Right. The experience, especially the first couple of months that were so intense and no one knew what was happening. And mm. we were in this lockdown and it was just, you know, doing what you needed to do to survive as a family and get everyone through and get the community through and figure out, okay, what do we do now with whatever changing data we're getting and how do we keep 
everyone together as a community and what does it mean to be in a community when you can't physically be together mm-hmm. and needing to make halachic decisions quickly and come up with stuff to send to people to figure out, well, how are you going to celebrate Passover this year in a way that's meaningful when we're all so disconnected? There was no class on how to be a <laughs> clergy person no. in a pandemic. And there was nothing they could have ever told, even if they had a class, it wouldn't have prepared us for the reason. No, there's no way. And it's like, you just have to figure it out. But it's also after that, it's okay. I feel pretty confident in my ability to discern what's needed and to take the steps necessary. I don't know how that process would have gone or it would be different if there hadn't been that pandemic and um, how my rabbinic identity would have developed differently. Um, Definitely is before and post pandemic. And it was a watershed in so many ways. For me, I actually balanced personal and professional life better. Mm. Became less rigid, more fluid in terms of being where I need to be for work, for family, for myself. It's, it's much better now. I don't even know what I was doing before the pandemic. Why did I do that professionally? All those mm-hmm. hours in my office. I think it's really for knowledge workers, for lack of a better word, in a lot of ways, like challenged structures in positive ways about how we work, how we balance, like where and how we do work, and also ideas around professionalism, right? Because now suddenly everyone is getting this window into people's personal lives or homes and environments whenever when people who had the capability to work on a computer were doing that via Zoom. And the potential it has for causing us to ask questions about those things. Huh, why are we doing things in this way that's actually not that helpful? Like this idea that like you have this like professional identity and this personal identity and never the two shall meet and you need to create this boundary and like there are expectations around like you must go to an office for X number of hours (laughs) in order to be a legitimate whatever fill in the blank and even ideas around dress and personal presentation and appearance, I've noticed, you know, we've all gotten a lot more relaxed about that. What does it mean to be professional and calling into question a lot of these things around? Well, like, why did we decide that a person can only be professional if they're wearing business or business casual attire as opposed to what they do? And what they're capable of and we've just thrown all that out people show up in meetings and t-shirts and stuff all the time and adults feeling much more free to wear whatever they want to wear to be comfortable and not out of like looking over your shoulder worrying that someone doesn't think you're quote-unquote professional enough yeah again you know wearing a zoom mullet you know pajamas in the bottom <laughs> iron shirt on top you know or things like that all of a sudden wearing jeans and a polo feels well that's better like <laughs> That's yeah. a little more put together. Like I'm doing great. Right. Yeah. I've just noticed like during the pandemic, why did we decide that when you reach a certain age, you need to only have naturally occurring hair colors? I've seen a lot more people with different Fun. hair colors, like adults, you know, I never, you know, never saw this before the pandemic so much. Now, why not? Why not? Who why says? not? It's hair. It'll grow out. 
Exactly. Or you don't like it, diet back. Why is the appropriate adult woman nail color palette only supposed to be nudes, reds, and pinks? We can just do whatever we want. Why? <laughs> All those things we took for granted suddenly were simply up for grabs and no longer musts. Yeah. I wish we could say that a lot of things that could potentially you know, been up for, for shifting, had gone through that. This is something we can come back to also that I'm thinking about of like, when you do have this moment of dramatic change or break, that also creates a lot of opportunity or potential for creating something new. There might be a window where, <laughs> where those transitions are more easily accomplished than others hmm. than other times. A time-limited time frame. For those listening, you could drop us an email with what was an important time of renewal and change for you. You can email us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And now, what have we been watching and or reading lately? Andrew and I have been independently watching things that are of the the same ilk and it seems like you you've had a little bit more time to process that and so maybe i'll jump in as we as you start talking but i i was just saying that i just got back from vacation in a pretty rare to find these days sort of off the grid location so I'm trying to remember where I left off with various TV <laughs> watching and stuff before my trip. I had re just recently started watching Foundation season one not too long ago. I had read at least the first book many years ago. And so and I know you were, were watching season two, so I'll let you talk more about that. And both of us have also seen the barbie movie yes. and we were having a bit of a conversation about that as we well indeed. i will try to do no foundation season two spoilers and only to bring it up insofar as that it is big and sprawling and inspired by asimov's books but it's clearly not based on them tightly it's on apple tv plus apple's streaming service Somebody who's a listener asked that we say where they can find these things. So that's where you can find Foundation. And the Foundation in Asma's work and in the show adaptation is the brainchild of Harry Selden, who notices that humanity goes through cycles of tremendous growth and then crash and burn with a slow build back to civilization. So very much the cycle we're thinking about. And the foundation, which is this storehouse of human knowledge and wisdom, is there to help humanity avoid huge catastrophe. And when there is a catastrophe, to help humanity bounce back faster, to avoid the periods of darkness and chaos that so inevitably plague humanity. This is set thousands and thousands of years in humanity's future, now spread across a vast galactic empire with spaceships and all kinds of fascinating high-tech great series really good secret invasion i persist in watching anything marvel produces no matter how people critique it or not and this is basically there's the the scroll who are a shape-shifting 
species. Their home world was destroyed by the Kree and Nick Fury, um, while letting them live on Earth, helps them find a new home world. And this is also kind of like, how do you respond to destruction? How do you rebuild? Some of the Skrull want to, you know, find a new planet where they could live peaceably and rebuild their society from there. Others want to just let humanity kill each other off and then take over Earth. They're immune to radiation, so nuclear war wouldn't bother them. And so there's two factions of Skrulls, one who are trying to rebuild through violence, and those who are trying to rebuild through cohabitation and harmonious living. So it, it comes up there too. And then I happened to watch in the background while cooking yesterday, and then I couldn't stop watching it, which is J.J. Abrams' Star Trek movie from 2006. It's been a while now. And I just love the movie it's it's actually my favorite star trek movie i think of all of them even more than the whales and if you haven't seen it it's well worth it i saw it on netflix and basically in the future romulus gets destroyed by a supernova spock and the vulcans are not able to stop it in time and one surviving ship from the romulans basically vows to get revenge and destroy Vulcan. They both end up getting sent to the past, both the Romulan ship and Spock's solo ship. And the Romulans on that ship are just trying to, they're, they're going to destroy Vulcan with the same thing that failed to save their home world. And so you get these two very different responses of how, how do you rebuild? You know, the Romulans' response was to destroy others, let them feel your pain versus, you know, internalizing it and becoming empathetic to those who also have lost and suffered they could turn their rage outward in a violent way and the vulcans who lost their home world they turn inward and just want to rebuild they're not trying to go and kill all the romulans even though the ones who did destroy vulcan are gone so there's a little bit of vengeance there but it did have that two kind of responses to destruction is do you lash out with rage or you kind of turn inward and rebuild and then there's the barbie movie about which there was much to say i noticed it was like a garden of eden narrative but what the roles flipped where barbie's the primary creation ken the accessory just as eve is built out of adam and she's more like his plus one Ken's mm -hmm. Barbie's plus one and you know ruth handler being the creator of this garden of eden kind of watches her creation Barbie become more fully human as she leaves the Garden of Eden. So it definitely had that layer to it. Really? Lots of thoughts about Barbie. Way too many for today, but I highly recommend seeing it. Lots to talk about. What were yeah. your thoughts on Barbie? Uh, again, I, I mean, I also have so many thoughts on on Barbie. One of the things that we we were chatting about is, again, one of my favorite things that I keep coming back to, which is Oh, like this is a fantasy near work and the ways that certain things that are are gendered or coded female or for girls are often not considered in the classic categories of fantasy or sci-fi. But this very clearly is fantasy. I enjoyed it a lot as someone who always had Barbies and played with Barbies growing up, seeing all of the products of the past that have been discontinued and the references to that throughout the movie, I found very amusing. 
as well as you're talking about the narrative where it's Barbie, the world was created for Barbie. It's a flip of the real world because, of course, when they go to the real world and Ken realizes, oh, it's a world where male experience is centered and 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 what that does this i think is an interesting example that you can punch up but not punch down mm -hmm. and so because we live in the real world as it's constructed in in the movie the fantasy of being in in the barbie centered world at least for a short short amount of time is a fun fantasy for for me as a woman you know not that and i don't want to create that right part of the movie doesn't quite get there, like critiquing what would an actual egalitarian society look like? Because it basically ends up with after the patriarchy is established and then the Barbies have to take over again. It's very much a conflict, right? Battle of the sexes kind of thing where they don't actually, by the end of the movie, succeed in creating a society where both the Barbies and the Kens play important roles maybe in a few generations you guys can like figure it out and get you know be represented in government and maybe that was intentional on the part of the the creators to poke fun a bit at the pace at which our own real world societies have moved towards incorporating women i'm still sitting with that but now i'm thinking about the ruth handler as you know god and <laughs> since you you brought up the way that she engages the creation and i'm thinking about that scene where barbie finds her and she's trying to escape and like what yeah and now i'm thinking like what would it mean what does it mean for for the the creator to help the creation escape mm -hmm. because that's what ends up happening and thinking about you know her role and her compassion towards barbie and barbie's desire to in the end experience what being a human or is including mortality i'll be thinking about that now because i hadn't really thought about so ruth wants barbie to the doll as idea to expand right right that was the intention that the movie points out did not go as intended in you know the kids critique of barbie which comes to her at school at lunch which was a very entertaining scene mattel wants barbie back in the box they want to commoditize yeah. her they don't want the idea to change they want the idea to be able to be sold and they want they just want to put her back in the box and yeah mattel is a weird villain but not evil but sympathetic but male it was very strange. I mean, punching up. And it's clearly also a Mattel movie. They're, they released a Kate McKinnon Barbie doll. So it's Mattel making toy movies for sure. And it's a critique. And people are critiquing the critique that the movie provides. And it's like, oh my gosh. Right. Yeah. Is Mattel really playing along? There's so many pieces throughout the movie where they make reference to well no one will buy that doll but then the other executives are like actually it's flying off the shelves and right as was uh, ken's weird weird mojo mojo mojo, mojo dojo <laughs> something Casa House. and they instantly begin to sell them too which is of course delightfully ridiculous right but it's also how much is mattel making already off of this movie right. and the associated products so it's all very 
Yeah. I think they're going to retcon the whole Fast and Furious line as a Hot Wheels series, which they just, <laughs> that way they don't have to make any more. They're just done. That'd be nice. How many, what number are they on at this point? Fast and Furious just had number 10 and they claim they're done. And Mattel has apparently over 200 projects being developed. Not that all will come to fruition, but they have their entire toy line. And they saw Lego movie do well. And they've seen Barbie do well. And, you know, cha-ching. The other movie sound from Pew Pew and Clang Clang is cha-ching, making the money. Which is fine. I have no problem with people making money off of good entertainment. That's perfectly good. So, yeah, Barbie, worth watching, lots to talk about. I'm sure it'll appear in a lot of high holiday sermons in various ways this year. Yeah. Yeah, lots of ways. I don't know. I, I'm i not personally, I, but I'm sure it will. I, I may, I mean, it may yet happen that Barbie will make her presence known in one of my sermons. So we'll see. So there is a news story that I debated, should we talk about it or not? So I'll mention it briefly and we can talk about it and decide. So there's a new Leonard Bernstein biopic called Maestro coming to Netflix soon i think october and november starring bradley cooper who is not jewish he's a very fine actor he voices rocket the raccoon in guardians of the galaxy he was in the hangover he was in the stars born remake with lady gaga he's great he's not jewish fine in the trailer it is clear he is wearing a prosthetic nose to play the role of leonard bernstein who does have a nose that is bigger than Bradley Cooper's. Some say it makes Bradley look Jewish in a stereotypical way. The nose is larger than Bernstein's nose. Some people are saying, why is Bradley Cooper playing Bernstein? Couldn't a Jewish actor be playing a Jewish character? And this raises the role of perpetuating stereotypes of Jews in films, casting Jews, casting non-Jewish actors and actresses as Jewish characters and and so forth. And so it's just something that's definitely been occupying my newsfeed as of late with people chiming in. Cooper and the Bernstein family have said, we think the movie is wonderful. We think dad would like the nose. He wouldn't care. Cooper is wonderful. He's been so respectful of our father's legacy and who he was. Y'all should just be quiet now and move on. Nothing really to see here. I just note that it's been a very interesting Jewish topic in pop culture media in the past few days. So do you have any thoughts on the casting of non-Jews and Jewish characters? Oh, my goodness. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, I can really, I have not invested a bunch in these kinds of conversations and it's complicated and ends up bringing in all kinds of things about that we could extrapolate beyond just the conversation around Jews and portrayals of Jewishness and who has the right to, you know, and it gets into questions that are very fraught and even within the Jewish community around like, what is Jewish identity? Are we taking in racialized and ethnic identities? Like, is it a religion? I think by a lot, it's confusing because I think 
coming out of the mid 20th century attempt to synthesize Judeo-Christian values and create Judaism as one of the religious options, like the Catholic, Protestant, and Jew as being, you know, the triumvirate that were like being represented in the 1950s. This is mm. like, oh, we can all be Americans and without over-reliance on these ethnic distinctions. But clearly, both from the perspective of Jews themselves and others who are representing Jews and saying, it's like, okay, well, do we put a prosthetic nose on someone or what? And then it gets into all these other things about stereotyped idea identities and racialization of Jews and and are Jews white which is a whole other question like well some Jews clearly are not <laughs> also whether or not Ashkenazi light-skinned Jews are white or not is a different question but you know then there's like that piece and then you know my perspective on things too being different as a person who's a Jew by choice who like I have no known Jewish ethnic ancestry, and yet I, you know, by according to the definition of halacha, I am, am fully Jewish in that sense. So there, I don't know. I have a, there's a lot. There's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot. And I mean, when you were talking about like this, I, I was thinking about marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Me too. Like, representation Me too. around that too. And, um, no matter who is chosen, or there could be a criticism. If someone chooses, an, let's say, an actress to play Midge, who was Jewish, let's say, and then there would be questions around that. Oh, do you have to have a Jewish actor to play a Jewish character? Does she look stereotypically, with air quotes around it, Jewish or not? And if she does, is that stereotyping? And if she doesn't, is that capitulation to non-jewish beauty standards that have been imposed on jewish women there's no matter what yeah you, you could you could get into these kinds it of feels like a trap it's a trap to it feels like a trap and you know, and tony shaloub who plays her father in the marvel of mrs Maple, is i thought he was lebanese right he he's not or, jewish he's yeah and but yet he very comfortably play the role of a mid-century Jewish father in New York you know you kind of like right and then but you can ask questions about that like are we overly stereotyping like what does Upper West Side Jewish 1950s and 60s like look and sound like and then oh my gosh we could do a whole episode on this yeah. and like how mean they are to Astrid the woman who is very her sister-in-law who converts to Judaism and is sitting there talking about Tisha B'Av and how they're mean to her about it. That's that's pretty standard <laughs> from my experience. Right. The trope of the enthusiastic <laughs> Jew by choice who is more enthusiastic than the Jews around them. Um, yes. Right. She's the butt of a joke because, oh, haha, isn't it funny that blonde Astrid of like Northern European ancestry cares more about Tisha B'Av than these guys while they're at the resort in the Catskills they did their homework or someone on the writing staff had the experience of going away to summer camp 
Jewish summer camp where they always had to figure out what do we do on Tisha B'Av with the campers. <laughs> Just, oh. right, did we talk about, have we mentioned or explained and defined Tisha B'Av on this podcast? Because I feel like it's it, relevant it, it, to our topic. Tis indeed. And the things that happen at summer camps to the campers on Tisha B'Av has often been weird. So Tisha B'Av, which means the ninth day of the month of Av, which is usually in late July, early to mid-August, depending on the year, is the day that commemorates the destruction of the first and second temples in Jerusalem, along with other A-tier catastrophes in Jewish history. And it's a fast day, which is no eating, no drinking, no leather shoes, bathing, makeup, no intimacy. And the the prayer services on that day reflect a kind of mournful, very low-key melodic melody. The book that is the focal point is the Book of Lamentations, Echa, which is chanted to its own melodic system of notes which is mournful and tragic and the book is heart-wrenching to read i can't read without crying every time just horrifying horrifyingly just depressing literature and in summer camp settings it was often you would find something like but not necessarily limited to hey, kids, let's build a model of the temple, and then they burn it. That's the gross stereotype. Yeah. There's an article in the Jewish press a few years ago, hey, Jewish summer camp staff, please stop making kids burn models of the temple in Jerusalem. Or these horrifying visualizing your loss and destruction exercises, which is often what people would do. And I am guilty of the same thing. I did some. yeah. I think this is a, a good kind of transition to our topic. Indeed, indeed. There's definitely a conversation to be had about age appropriateness of introducing, sure. you know, how do we engage with these topics? But I'm seeing this from my perspective of teaching adult intro to Judaism classes. And in general society, there needs to be a way to meaningfully engage with these themes of loss and destruction that honors them and doesn't just like elide over them because I, I i will often say about american society that i think we're pathologically positive as a society and we don't want it or have been i think it might be changing not wanting to engage with or admit or acknowledge negative experiences emotions etc and i think that if we can figure out the way to engage with these themes and we need to engage and remember and honor the feelings of loss and recognize them, but then also thinking about, okay, what what comes next or what what is the reconstruction process? So that's right. what we're gonna be talking about today. Yeah. And I think I think Judaism has this unique narrative to offer of renewal and rebuilding and reconstructing that mm -hmm that you can acknowledge the loss, but there you are acknowledging the loss because some did survive, some did rebuild, some did figure out again how to redo life after whatever the catastrophe was. Otherwise, you wouldn't be talking about it. You wouldn't be remembering it. 
So even though the fact of being able to remember the catastrophe is in of itself part of the catharsis and, 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 and how you frame it. Mm-hmm. The sci-fi and fantasy may be a way to actually help people. There probably is how people actually deal with it. Is they kind of they, maybe we actually sublimate these things into these fictional narratives because it's safer. Right. I think that's a part of what humans have always done. We're talking about storytelling a few episodes yeah. back, right? We tell use narrative to make sense of these bigger questions whether we're telling narratives based on our own history or creating fictional ones that help us process Mm -hmm. and think through these things right think how many sci-fi fantasy books movies tv shows have some kind of catastrophic event and then some form of rebuilding afterwards don't they all actually have that there's just so much of it just to rattle off a few lord of the rings the kingdom of humans has been whittled away by mordor which is also trying to build and not be taken over the matrix trilogy has humanity overtaken by a robotic uprising and then humanity rebuilding zion as it were the you know funny they chose that name Zion. In the end, they actually do try to resolve the cycle of destruction and rebuilding, which there's like this loop that they're stuck in for the first part of the trilogy. Star Wars movies, the Old Republic is turned into the Empire when Palpatine is able to destroy the Republic and turn it into an autocracy. And then that doesn't last 30 years. And they're trying to rebuild the Republic. And that's weak. And that ends up crumbling to the First Order. So there's these cycles of Destruction, rebuild, destruction, rebuild, all through Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, Hunger Games, you name it. It's in so many things. Are there any of the realms you enjoy that have this that we haven't mentioned yet? We've talked on this podcast before about Battlestar Galactica. That's always a big one for me, right? The world like literally gets blown up and has multiple times in deeper past of the show as well as in the the early phases i'm talking about the early 2000s version where all the worlds are destroyed and there's literally the only remnant of humanity is on this ship and (laughs) floating through space and figuring out okay well where do we go and i mean it's really that you know, connects to like the Noah's Ark kind of narrative, right? This sort of surviving remnant and you're going to rebuild somewhere whenever you find like a safe landing place. Game of Thrones, Song of Ice and Fire. It's not featured so far in the narratives themselves of the books and, and shows sort of alluded to in various ways like what's happened in the past right why exactly do the targaryens come across to westeros there's always this engagement with you know what's going on in the north too and north of the wall and this vast historical time scale where there are allusions to what's gone on in the past or this looming fear of what's to come this showdown 
that will be potentially cataclysmic and involve reorganization. There's certainly reorganization of society that has happened multiple, yeah. and there have been multiple waves of different, you know, like they refer to it, it's like the Andals and the First Men, different waves of, of immigration coming and, you know, what was the experience of the perspective of the people who are not writing the history? Mm -hmm. It is an interesting thing to, to think about. It's like that would certainly feel destructive. And then what do you build or construct out of that? Right, Lord of the Rings, at the end of Return of the King, they say this is now the beginning of the next age. Like that was the cataclysm. And now we're going to rebuild a world that is basically humans, dwarves, and hobbits, no elves. So there's another phase of life in Middle Earth, or whatever the next phase would be in the Tolkien world. But all of these have to do with resilience. Like, that's the theme, is that humanity, as of now, has not actually been stopped. There's always been something that survives, something that looks back, takes what it can out of the ashes, and then rebuilds and creates something new. Mm -hmm. That is the big motif. Um, that is renewal based on the destruction. And certainly rabbinic literature, definitely in our constructed memory of the rabbis, that happens all the time. In the Noah story, in the Exodus narrative, going into the land, when the monarchy is destroyed, and then there's a return from exile in Babylon, there's rebuilding there. In so many of these fictional worlds, there is repair that goes on. And it makes me think about the Jewish phrase, tikkun olam, which we both know is often used to refer to social justice or to being compassionate in the world. But it literally means to repair the world. And it has layers and layers of meaning. And it talks about this theme of rebuilding after catastrophe or to fix things that are broken. Where do you see in like our big narratives this same idea? What in our master narratives does this make you think of? I wouldn't have necessarily like thought of some of these narratives in connection with the phrase tikkun olam, but they do seem related to this overall topic that we're talking about of there constantly being this need to adapt to new circumstances, this theme of change being kind of the only constant and, and needing to create something new. So one of them right from the Torah pretty early on in our narrative as a the Jewish people is the exodus from Egypt and the period of wandering through the wilderness. That is really a narrative of becoming a new kind of community and a new kind of people. So you have this movement from being enslaved in Egypt to wandering through the desert, receiving Torah, learning a new way of being or a new kind of relationship to God in preparation for what's ultimately to come after the conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy at the end of the five books of the Torah, entering into the land and creating this new society. We also 
later on in in the Tanakh hear about the destruction of the first temple, which obviously was a massive (laughs) cataclysmic change that's completely reorienting in a lot of different ways, both just socially and religiously. A number of the leaders of the community are exiled to Babylon. Others remain behind. But then we have this period of the return from Bavel, where some members of the community choose to come back and are thinking about, okay, how do we recreate or create a new society? They are going to rebuild the temple, but of course, you can never really go 100% back to the way things were before. They return under the Persian Empire. They're building the temple again, but enough has changed in the interceding years here that you're really creating something new. And we see those narratives reflected in the books of Ezra Nehemiah, where you really see something new being put into place. Ezra creating the or implementing the practice of gathering everybody together to read from the Torah. That's the origin that we have of this practice of reading from a book as a community. And that was something that wasn't taking place before. That was something that was an innovation of Ezra that he saw as our conditions have changed enough, even though we're coming back, we're returning to a place that um, ancestors had been before, or perhaps previous generations had been before. But even so, conditions have changed enough that we need to do something new and different. Yeah, I love that chapter of Nehemiah so much. Nehemiah 8 is the one that we're talking about. And what I love about the way they introduced the Torah reading is that, one, it's the first time uh, Sefer Torah Moshe appears in with that name and maybe even that form. So it's clearly old material, but it's like they're hearing it for the first time, but it's in Hebrew and nobody knows Hebrew. They've all forgotten Hebrew. So there's this forgetting, and yet there's this book that has this connection to the past. And so they immediately begin to translate into Aramaic and to interpret it so everyone can know what it means. This is still what happens today. Nobody in our synagogues, for the most part, actually knows biblical Hebrew enough to simply hear the Torah and say, oh, got it. Most people need translations and explanation and interpretation. And it set that ball rolling two and a half thousand years ago. And I love that so much. Ezra you know, Nehemiah chapter eight, one of my favorite Tanakh chapters of all time. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. And now, of course, all the neurons are firing because when I went to, to the Rabbinic Training Institute this year, it's organized by JTS for those who are listening, is a annual retreat for rabbis, involves a lot of opportunities to learn. I was taking one of the classes that I was taking was about Arabic Jewish culture. And so we're talking about Sadia Gaon, the Gaonim, and Jewish commentaries and writing on the Torah in Arabic. And one of the, the things that came up, one of the texts that we were looking at was talking about how quickly new languages are adopted by every community and by the Jewish community. So we see in this, this 
example with Ezra and Nehemiah, people have been gone for not so long, but you lose the language pretty quickly in, in the immigrant kind of situation. And Aramaic and Hebrew are a lot closer together than Hebrew is to the languages that the most of our communities are. What they were talking about in the context of the medieval Arabic speaking world, in the medieval Jewish world, the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries, the vast majority of Jews in the world lived in the Middle East and North Africa or under the rule of Arabic speaking Islamic rulers and very quickly adopted Arabic as their language as well. There were questions being written to rabbinic authorities about what we have this practice in our communities of of including this Aramaic Targum, which was the common practice. But the problem is now no one speak, understands Hebrew or Aramaic. So can we just do it in Arabic? Because that's what everybody speaks. And they were like, no. So what huh? happened was like the Aramaic tra tra Targum ended up taking on this ritualized form to the degree that people were insisting on like, this is the only thing that you can do, even though the original intent, even if we see from Nehemiah that it was the purpose so that people could understand. And it I didn't just... take long for people to no longer be able to understand the Aramaic. Right. And the Aramaic becomes enshrined as part right. of sacred text. The good thing about that is, or a good thing about that is that one, it does preserve interpretation of a certain time period and Rashi uses it considerably in his commentary so he keeps it relevant by knowing Aramaic and being able to use it to shed light so it is a tool that does remain useful but not to the everyday person in synagogue who speaks Arabic in that time period Right, because there's also Tafsir Rasad, right, which is Rabbi Sadia Gon's Arabic translation, which you can get online on Safaria, which is cool. I don't speak Arabic, so it's useless to me. It's Arabic and Hebrew letters. But if you know Arabic and you read Judeo-Arabic, very handy commentary. Right, yeah, they wouldn't I, allow it. That's fascinating. They wouldn't allow right. it. Right, or the, they wouldn't allow it to be used in synagogue. Like It's interesting because they had frozen in time this use of the Aramaic translation in a ritual context. Mm -hmm. But people, as you're talking about, Sadia Gon and others were writing Arabic translations and commentaries on the Torah because that was the language that people were speaking and, and understood. So for study purposes, it was okay. But I, I don't know at what point the use of the Aramaic Targum in the context of chanting from the Torah dropped out in most communities. I know that there were and maybe are communities that's in in the Middle East, particularly that that maintained that practice for a lot longer. That synagogues still use it. Yeah. If they're like a classic Yemenite synagogue, mm -hmm. it's so it's so funny. There's a, there's the image in my head. And for reason, this image in my head is of Kintsugi, 
which says there's this beautiful thing, this beautiful, you know, originally piece of pottery, this beautiful synagogue practice, the Aramaic translation between the verses of the Torah. There's this beautiful, you know, ceramic pot. And at some point, they have to be broken. You know, the pot, either by accident or the synagogue practice deliberately, but you're not going to throw it away, but you have to break it to make it better or to make it more beautiful. And so the Kintsugi is repairing it with gold, and you can kind of see the original piece of pottery, but then repaired with gold, making it even more beautiful. And like the breaking of like a rigid practice, you can't use anything but the Aramaic, and then bringing in clearly other things because we dropped it, and now we use English. At some point, that gets broken, but repaired in other ways that might make it continue to function. So I think about this breaking and repairing cycle where either we're deliberately or things get actually broken and then we just keep on putting it back together, but in new ways that are also beautiful, just different. That's an interesting take on things for sure. I hadn't really thought about the liturgy or practice in term in terms of kintsugi, which I also find really beautiful. One of the challenges that I think we experience in our liturgy and synagogue life in particular is that we don't actually see the seam lines along with the kintsugi, unless along lines of the kintsugi, unless we're trained specifically to learn and understand those things. And you, they're very thin. We've added so much to the liturgy over time as new things became relevant or important to Jewish communities. We've, you know, new PU team, new liturgical poetry was written, certain things, prayers became, or songs became very popular and were integrated in. And what we've had is this constant adding and adding without editing things out. And people often, you know, don't, don't know the history of what was sort of core and what was added later. And does it really matter or are we kind of stuck with the most recent version that has added in all this stuff and that it is often taken or understood unless you have spent a considerable amount of time learning about it as like all of this was created in this comprehensive way and you can't edit or change any of it now because we don't make those seam lines so visible to the I average I've heard that even apply to person. melodies where someone goes to a synagogue that they do not know and there's a different melody for something and the person's experience is they've ruined everything. They went for a very specific experience to hear what they thought were like the only melodies for those words ever for all time. And some new melodies where it's done differently, and they're really upset and angry that it wasn't exactly the way that it is supposed to be. The person wanted something comforting, familiar, give them solace, and they went and it was unfamiliar, and it undermined what they expected, and they were very frustrated. Yeah, things can be very rigid with it that are not actually rigid. Going back into the the historical construction, destruction and reconstruction. There have been so many examples of this, right? So we talked about the destruction of the first temple and 
return from exile and this implementation of a new way of doing things to meet what the needs of the moment were. Of course, there were a lot of changes between the rebuilding of the temple and the destruction of the second temple, but the destruction of the second temple is when Judaism fundamentally changes uh, from what it had been to something to putting in place the pieces that enable us to have the kind of Jew Jewish life that we have now. We move from right, you no longer have a temple, which was the center of Jewish practice to, okay, what do we do now? And the after the destruction of the first temple, there was this hope of return and it turned out that they were actually able to come back and build another temple in not too long afterwards. But in reading the rabbinic narratives around the destruction of the second temple, at least the way it's presented shows that Yochanan, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has a great amount of foresight in creating something new or a different form of Jewish practice that is not going to be dependent on the temple or on even any particular geographic location. I was thinking about that story from the Talmud in particular, and we'll have a source sheet with that story in the show notes for sure. And I think about this in a Kintsugi kind of way even more, like temples destroyed and Yochanan ben Zakkai, he's like the gold filler that puts the pieces back together. So it's going to like connect to the previous thing that was destroyed, but it's going to be a new version of that that's going to be useful, but in a new way and beautiful, but in a new way. This is the pivotal rabbinic text about this theme. The old gets destroyed. Some things survive. There's a relationship with authority, the Romans in this case, and there's a new location identified to actually go and rebuild. And then there's this period of continuity and discontinuity, right? You know, there's so many examples of Yochanan ben Zakkai. They go, okay, well, what do we do about shofar and lulav? How do we do it now? He goes, well, let's just do this, and then we'll decide later. And then they do it in some way that harkens back to how it was done in the temple. And they say, what should we do now? He goes, oh, yeah, that's what we're going to do now forever. That's it. And just sort of does it, just sort of creates these uh -huh. decisions just to make Jewish life happen. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened at all in some cases. And he says, okay, that's it. We decided moving on now. And that's what we're going to do forever. And those are the things that we still do. Like this right, is so just to spell out the story a little bit more for yes, please who don't know right so so the story is right there's there's a Jewish revolt that's been going on there's a lot of texts that deal with you know the internal Jewish conflict but essentially uh, Judea the land of Israel is under Roman rule there is a revolt against the Romans. The Roman army has siege around Jerusalem. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is the leader of the community. He sees what's coming, knows there's really no future. There's no way the temple is going to be preserved, knows that it's going to get destroyed. Essentially, 
negotiates to be able to leave is smuggled out of Jerusalem in a coffin and brought to an alternative location, the city of Yavne in the north of Israel, where he creates or reestablishes a new center of Jewish life. It had some continuity with what had already been going on. There, there already were generations of sort of proto-rabbis who were involved in interpreting the Torah and transmitting traditions about how to practice Judaism and bringing some practices uh, into the hands of the people who were not a part of, let's say, the priestly hierarchy. But creating a new center of Jewish life where the focus would become the Torah and interpreting it and figuring out how to observe Jewish tradition without the temple even being a thing anymore. So what what do you do? You might have thought that with the Torah's focus on the sacrificial system as administered by the priests, that if you didn't have a temple anymore, okay, we don't have any rituals to do. And this was a radical act of saying, no, actually, even without the temple, even without these rituals, we actually can create something new and meaningful and portable that is in continuity with our past, but in a lot of ways is is actually a very radical departure. It's in Avot the Rabbi Nathan. I could not find another Talmudic source for it. Such a powerful text about resilience and rebuilding and continuity and discontinuity. In a lot of sci-fi and fantasy works, there is a cultural preservation following some period of catastrophe. And we have the same in Jewish sources, the same in Jewish history, and in Jewish sources based on those historical periods of time. Like, what are the ones that are most present on your mind? I guess first in sci-fi and fantasy. So this is a very common theme in a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. One that comes to mind for me is Foundation series, which you are further into than I am. I read some of the books many years ago, so I'm not, don't remember exactly like what happens plotline wise, but we we were talking a little bit about that. And then maybe you can go into that a bit more. And one of the the series that I've been thinking about a lot with respect to this, particularly with what happens post-destruction and reconstruction, is Battlestar Galactica, mm. the early 2000s reboot of the show from the 70s. And, I mean, the, the <laughs> premise of the show is, right, the colonies are all destroyed and the only remnant of humanity is on these ships on the Battlestar. Oh, the secretary of education (laughs) becomes the president. 
you know that you are the last remaining remnant of human culture and not really sure where you're going. And there are a lot of other elements to that show as well, right? The conflict between the humans and the Cylons. But there is this overarching theme of, okay, preserving human culture and what are we going to re-establish or establish anew and what should the future look like now that so much has been destroyed of the past and we're not going back yeah so right because you have the colonies they and they were actually different planets so then the, when there was a, a later follow-up series that was actually a prequel called caprica it talks about i remember caprica that was a prequel i had no idea it was a prequel. It was a oh, prequel okay. to Battlestar talking about oh. what was supposed to have happened when there were the colonies and leading up to the destruction and how the Cylons start coming into being. It, it's one of those properties that I I think I now want to go back to and watch. Mm -hmm. For whatever reason, my Star Wars snobbery kept me away from it it's like it feels like it's the star wars knockoff but it's not it's a very different story yes there are spaceships but the whole plot's completely different i should get over my big bad self and go and check it out so foundation written by isaac asimov who is jewish i guess in that sense it feels deeply like rabbi yochanan menzakai trying to save the sages in yavna it feels like that let us just pull out this remnant and keep it safe so when things as things are collapsing we'll be able to rebuild afterwards they don't really get into details about what's in the archive but the intent of the archive is to create enough of a bank of human knowledge so that when society collapses they can rebuild faster because we know it's going to collapse they've seen it happen in the past it's going to happen again harry selden has mapped it out mathematically and it's going to happen. And in the show, they're also trying to avert larger crises to keep the worst from happening. So they're trying to like adjust galactic history with key people in the timeline. Um, the series that is also from Latter-day Saints by Orson Scott Card is called The Homecoming Series. Right. The first book is that. The Memory of Earth, where humanity sends out colony ships and they do give them this archive of human knowledge minus a few key inventions that they felt was what destroyed humanity combustive engines firearms wheels etc and they give them all the technology all the knowledge to advance without those things so there is this preservation of humanity minus key elements and then at some point a small band is assembled, 12 brothers, haha, biblical indeed, to go back to Earth to keep the experiment going on the colony. Because humanity has to work out its issues before it is worthy of going back into the land, back to Earth as it will. And it's actually 40 million years after the initial colony was established. It is not very optimistic in that sense at all. But that's certainly the one where I really think about um, this issue. Have you read the Orson Scott Card Matriarch Trilogy? I've read some of them. I don't know that I read... Wait, so what's the trilogy? Because there, there are four, more, more than three matriarchs. 
So they do Rebecca, they do Rachel and Leia as one book. Oh, okay. So book one is Sarah, <laughs> book two, Rebecca, book three, Rachel and Leia. In book ah. two about Rebecca, I remember Asav is the firstborn. He is the one who has to learn the Bechorah, the birthright, which is this abstract thing that he's not into in the Torah. But in the book by card, the Bechorah is this chest of scrolls written by Adam, Cain, Seth, Methuselah. All the ancestors have written down their stories in a scroll. And every firstborn has to take the chest of scrolls, read them all, memorize them, make their own copy, and then write their own scroll and maybe even commentaries on the earlier books. It's this very concrete way that they preserve their heritage from firstborn to firstborn over the course of 20-odd generations. And Aesop wants to be part of it. Love that image of this very carefully learned, memorized, copied, passed on, and then added to set of books that help preserve continuity back to the as to the earliest days and on into the distant future. I love this, the way that our conversation is unfolded here, right? Because we're talking about sci-fi and fantasy works. Then you <laughs> move to talking about Orson Scott Card's books that are based on, that are about, or are midrash, essentially. We're now talking about the actual technology of writing on scrolls and preserving them as physical ways of transmitting and now kind of looping back to well what were the actual ways that jewish tradition has been transmitted you know first orally and then also through like creating like a book-based culture as we were talking mm -hmm. a little bit earlier about ezra and nehemiah the people returning from babylonian exile and Ezra's implementation of this practice of like, oh, we're actually going to sit here and gather together and read from this scroll. And so that's the biblical evidence itself of the new thing to do. And those who study the editing of the Bible and biblical literature as an academic discipline and are always interested in when is it that the actual five books of the Torah or the Tanakh as we know it today came into its form as a written document. There was, there was a point where the community did not have that scroll or the, those books in the form that we have them today. And then at some point they did. And mm -hmm. what were the changes that led to, okay, now we're actually going to go through this process of writing things down in order to make sure that they're preserved. And we see that pattern repeat itself throughout Jewish history. Right? So first we're talking about centralizing the Torah, the book, the books of the Torah as a centerpiece of Jewish practice. Then we have oral traditions and the lore of Yehuda Hanasi, not writing it down initially, but redacting or editing a, an official transmitted version of the Mishnah in the 200s. Then later we see a similar process going on with the Talmuds, both at Jerusalem and 
Babylonian Talmuds, as circumstances change, this need to make sure that we have a mechanism for recording and transmitting our traditions. Mm-hmm. And this takes me right to Bradbury's Fahrenheit at 451. So you've mm-hmm. got a culture where they are anti-literature, anti-intellectual, anti-education, and the firemen are burning all the books. And the people who were opposing this destruction of human literature, each of them takes responsibility for memorizing one book. And they teach that book to one other person to keep the book alive. So as long as they're alive and they've memorized the book, the book continues to exist. They become living books themselves. Mm -hmm. Just like we had these Tanaim, these Mm -hmm. people with, I assume, remarkable memories, or we just don't have the memories now that they did because we simply have too much tech to hold our knowledge. They memorized all these teachings. They would pass them around orally. I always picture the guy in the corner of the classroom. Yo, Tana, give us Mishnah Tanit 4-2. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Let's discuss. And then the Tana would basically listen to the conversation, go to the next town, and they would say, hey, what do they say over there about Tanit 4-2? He would say, oh, they said this, this, and this. Good. Let's discuss. Like that process mm-hmm. where these human I'm going to say tape recorders because I'm old. Human re- <laughs> recorders who did that. So I, I think of, I think of Bradbury's 451 mm-hmm. and the human mind as one of the best ways we actually do that. But it's so fraught. Yeah. We're so squishy. Scrolls are good too. <laughs> you know, but it, it, it's always this tension. What is the best way to preserve knowledge? How do we do it? Yeah. Let's get this written down. Or get it recorded. Or it's like organized and memorized. Things. Organized and memorized. Yeah. That's so interesting that about the Fahrenheit 451 example is that it's a backtracking to an older form, right? We did have oral culture and storytelling and literature was how knowledge was transmitted for probably most of human history for your average mm-hmm. person. Then we started, you know, moving towards, okay, we're we're book people. We're gonna write a lot of stuff down which allows for the knowledge to be transmitted in different kinds of ways. Like you don't have to have the person who has it memorized anymore if you have a copy of the book. And then this is imagining a world in which, okay, but if the physical copies are getting destroyed, then we need to actually revert back to something that cannot be physically destroyed by taking the thing that had once existed in someone's mind, has been committed to book form, and now we're going to make it kind of like I almost said like the cloud, but it's like, yeah, what's the human, what's human, the human mind or human consciousness as a, as a knowledge container. With backups. With as many people as we possibly can, all with as much knowledge as they they possibly can retain, even with like part here and part there, we've got backups in the, the human cloud of the mind. I love that. And I mean, when you're saying maybe if there's pieces here or there, that also really makes me think of the way that the discourse in the Talmud plays out as these conversations that often happen, right? Where it's two different people have different versions of the same thing. They're like, wait, no, 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 no. That's that's not how I heard that story. Mm-hmm. The way that I heard it or I heard that teaching is the following. And then you have these examples of the preservation of this process of bringing the pieces together and trying to figure out what the answer is through 
potential potentially competing traditions or interpretations of the same thing a strategy of trying to harmonize them by saying maybe that person thought x because their definition or understanding of the terms under discussion was shaped by this other thing it's so fascinating as i'm thinking about this because they might have been imagining their project as trying to reconstruct some original or teaching or tradition right what the entirety of the torah is getting at in all of its complexity i think of mishnah midot mm. which is the there's no talmud on midot but in the mishnah and midot all that it is is the second temple preserved in linguistic yeah terms like if you were to feed it into a, a 3d printer it would yeah. churn out you know, the Herodian temple as the rabbis remember it. So we even can preserve buildings in a linguistic yeah. format. I mean, it's, it's like a verbal blueprint. Yeah. So much of the Talmud works that way. Good chunks of the Talmud are talking about and preserving things that were not in practice at the time of the rabbis and have not been in practice since. Anytime we're talking about ritual in the temple it's not a blueprint but it's also preserving in in linguistic form like the instructions for or at least what their imagined form of what the sacrificial rituals would have looked like and other rituals would have looked like had they taken place in the temple their idea in having these conversations is maybe to reconstruct this original teaching but in the process of doing that they create something else mm-hmm. which is the talmud as we have it which is the preservation the recording of the conversation trying to reconstruct this and that in and of itself becomes a new text that then inspires even more conversation and engagement what did they mean this idea of a human cloud ever expanding but now we also have text and writing that's been attached to that as yeah. well yeah and yeah and written and commented and written another author who is about this issue are sir terry pratchett of blessed memory a personal favorite one of his works is called the bromeliad trilogy there are a bunch of very small people called gnomes n-o-m-e-s and the group we focus on lives by a highway there had been more they're down to like 10 a few elderly couple younger ones and they have this black box which they call the thing and the elder claims that the thing has told them to go to a certain place and to tell the gnomes living there they have to get out it's a department store they go there and the gnomes in the department store think that the store is the entire universe. Therefore, these gnomes from the outside don't exist. Therefore, their warning doesn't matter. But it does matter because the store is closing. Everything must go. They've been reading the signs, literally in the store, that the end of the world is coming, but they've been ignoring them. But what they've forgotten is that they're all aliens. And this thingy <laughs> is like the ship's computer drive. So there are these people living basically in exile on Earth, 
struggling to survive. And so they eventually do regain their memory. Like they find their ship in orbit. They do reconnect with their past and they basically go home. But they slowly realize that the world that they thought was a certain size, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. As they recover more of their memory and who they are, they're not you know, creatures who basically eke out an existence by the highway, they're actually advanced technological space travelers, but they forgot. So that's one beautiful story. Mm. It's an amazing trilogy called Truckers, Diggers, and Wings. Very mm. good trilogy. This is a, a transition a bit to a different idea how do we relate to this ongoing process that we see throughout Jewish history and as in sci-fi and fantasy works as well of breakdown and reconstruction? Do we view this positively or how do we relate to maybe concerns that we might have in our own world about the future and what can we learn from history and from our narratives that can help us with that throughout Jewish history when we've been talking about the biblical period and the rabbinic period early rabbinic period there have been many many times when Jewish communities have either been destroyed by violence where people have been displaced where people have moved either by force or out of choice to places where they hadn't previously lived and needed to create something new of course have many examples of expulsions or exile from parts of europe and western europe and jews moving to eastern europe and creating new communities there jews who had been in spain and portugal and the expulsions from there that led to jews moving all throughout the mediterranean world and Middle East and creating new communities and traditions there, even with all of the the pain and suffering and tragedy that is certainly a part of those experiences, to me it also demonstrates this incredible hope and resilience because out of the ashes of destruction new things new possibilities are always there and new things have continued to be nurtured and created and built and it's impossible to know of course what would have happened if for example the jews had never been expelled from spain but think about how much diversity in jewish thought and culture came about as a result of the communities that were created from the diaspora of the Iberian Jewish communities. If we didn't have Yerush Farad, the expulsion from Spain, then Jews of Spain would have stayed there. Who knows what would happen to them? Every community along North Africa, Middle East would have remained distinctive and have maybe less connective tissue. We might have no Lurianic Kabbalah. We might not have a Shulchan Aruch. All of the 
major works of Jewish literature of that time period that were so influential maybe wouldn't have been written at all. And we would be a completely different people. Who knows? And who knows what else might have changed beyond that if that had not happened? Right. It, it shaped who we are in ways we can't even really, even really fully appreciate. And it was terrible, but it was formative. So one of the things that the narrator said in Foundation Season 2, I think it's Harry Seldon saying it, is that history is never impacted by any two people falling in love. Like the individual's big picture rarely matter, but every now and then they do, very rarely. So I guess on the one hand, I appreciate in the Hebrew Bible the lack of focus on individuals in many different aspects. There's just the people in this large-scale approach. And I appreciate the impact that Abraham and Sarah had as individuals. Like, there's both the large scale where individuals do not matter much, and there's also the small scale where they do. So I guess I take comfort that whatever I'm experiencing, I don't see the whole picture nor can I impact the whole picture, and things may be happening far beyond my view. When I was in Israel 20-odd years ago, Rabbi Levi Lauer, who was then part of the Shalom Hartman Institute, described the work that they were doing there, and are still doing, as essentially helping the Jewish people through this paradigm shift. So they saw at Hartman that we were undergoing a very large transition um, as a people that is going to take many decades to fully resolve. And we don't know what it will look like at the end, but they wanted to be at the front and center of thinking through all these Jewish issues and taking everything very seriously. That gives me hope that I just don't see the big picture. So I may be stressed out, I may be anxious, but the larger trends in Jewish history are ones that individuals really can't control. So I find that actually comforting that, it, that it's happening. It's bigger than I am. I'll do what I can. I might make an impact, but I might not. And that's okay. I agree. It's difficult, right? We were talking about this, especially in reference to Tisha B'Av, and we're in this moment where a lot of things seem to be changing. It's always uncertain what the future is going to hold. There are a lot of people who are who are very concerned, rightfully, about what the future is and the potential for destruction, whether we're talking about climate-related crises, whether we're talking about political crises, the potential for you know, massive change at the very minimum and potentially destruction is something that's very real. And that shouldn't be discounted, right? The negative aspects of anything that's going to cause this massive disruption of our way, our way of living. But there is also this sense of hope that I get from reading revisiting Jewish history and looking at Jewish sources, 
of the potential for survival and for creating something new, even if it's something that is so beyond our capacity to imagine right now what it could be. You know, one of the messages of Tisha B'Av for me is that we both recognize and honor and remember what's happened in the past and, and remember the suffering of our ancestors or of our own experiences and also look at positively what we've been able to create in the time since those those massive disruptions and destructions have taken place and that those have value too deep ambivalence about the past in jewish tradition there's this romanticization of the temple, but I don't know how many people actually want a third temple. Some do, some very much do, but I don't know if the classic rabbis actually wanted that or how much they wanted just to simply move beyond that. The destruction of the first and second temple and all the other catastrophes around that, to do Tisha B'Av properly, is it gonna tap into that pain? And to feel that suffering on that day. And I'm glad it's just one day. But then everything else around it in the Jewish calendar, it acknowledges that, but it does not dwell on it. How much do they actually really want to go back to before that pain versus to keep building into the future? I think that's a core tension in yeah. thought is like, yes. We romanticize the past, but we don't really want to go back. You know, the phrase, renew our days in the days of old. I don't know what that actually means in practice. I know what it figuratively mm -hmm. means, where everything is harmonically in the right place again. But I don't know what that actually looks like. That phrase, that line, which is the last lines that we say together as a community from when we read the Book of Lamentations, Echa on Tishbaav, it's also it has a tension within it. Chadeshia menu kekedam. It's like renew, make new. Chadesh is chadash, the Hebrew word for for something be new. Our days as of as of days of old of back before. I think both of them are always in play, right? There's like remembering the past and connecting with that and renewal. And that it's, and maybe it's actually teaching us something, which is that we can get back to the feeling, the feeling of wholeness, but the way that we do that might be in a new way. Mm. Right. Like, like actually. before and, and we're, but we're renewed. It's something new. It doesn't have to be identical. But there's some that we can experience again, that feeling of connectedness, wholeness, being a part of community, even if it doesn't look exactly the same as it once was. I want to come back to my Kintsugi metaphor, where looking back at Jewish history and seeing all those broken pieces rebuilt in new ways broken pieces rebuilt it's always build shatter rebuild shatter rebuild it's centuries of building catastrophe and then rebuilding and 
on the grand scale where I don't see any human suffering at that scale, it's quite beautiful, even though it contains so much death and destruction, which is, I feel a little callous saying that, but there is something just like deeply optimistic about it that there was always something rebuilt from the pieces and it was always differently beautiful than whatever was before. Yeah, I mean- That does give me hope. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I encounter it when I when I'm thinking about human history, not just yeah. Jewish history on a mass yes. scale. And, you know, when we're in it, when we're in the course of our lifetimes and confronting the issues that we are and the concerns that we have, which are all very real. And acknowledging that suffering is taking place. And if there are processes that have the potential to to disrupt human life in mass massive ways that there will be even more suffering but yet looking at so many times when humans have felt and written and preserved in our memory that the world is ending things are broken how can they ever be good again and and they are so and life has has we've not yet succeeded in wiping out the entirety of humanity and being able to create something i'm thinking about i listened to a history podcast a couple years ago and just keeps sticking with me that was talking about you know the sea peoples and how from the perspective of the major empires of the late bronze age where from the perspective of the empires in the middle east it was like oh my gosh everything is the world is ending the world is ending everything these people are everything is ending everything's terrible we're never going to survive again but yet your average everyday person who survived through that found a way to keep going and live their day-to-day life and eventually the pieces that were left were able to be put back together into something new. When you were talking about the Kintsugi metaphor, I was thinking about this earlier as well. How many times do you shatter before you can't put the pieces back together in that exact way again? So what was coming to mind was actually, maybe it's more of like a mosaic at a certain point. You don't have enough of the original form to like only stitch it together with molten metal to reform your cup or pot. I have seen people do this in the ceramics studio where I I take classes, which is like take pieces, like just broken pieces of a pot that broke or, you know, came out of the kiln and things happen in the kiln. You're talking about blasting things with tremendous amount of heat and it breaks, but hey, you maybe really like that part and how beautiful the surface texture is. And you take those pieces and you can cement them together into a beautiful pattern in the form of a mosaic, taking all of the parts that were left that are beautiful and creating something new out of it. And that maybe after enough shatterings, that's where you are is creating the mosaic. Broken and beautiful. 
Yeah. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that the kiln, I think, is it Deuteronomy where God or Moses calls Egypt Kur Habarzel, mm. like the blast furnace? Mm -hmm. They literally talk about the Egypt like a kiln that fired Israel, that actually took the molded clay <laughs> and and turned it into something durable, harder, more resilient. Mm -hmm actually able to be of use because a clay pot unfired just turns to mush when it gets wet but when you fire right. it it actually is able to be something else yeah. than yeah. just clay in a shape yeah you are you're literally tra transforming it into something new i learned a lot about about clay over the past year and it's called stoneware um most clays that we use are earthenware there's stoneware a lot of clay like your everyday dishes that you probably use are, are stoneware because you were you were actually taking dirt and turning it into stone by by doing this that's a really interesting description egypt is also the the wandering in the desert right yeah. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. re really the transformative moment and we can think of so many others that have happened to the jewish people since then right how many through all of these other experiences, you get shaped into something else or right. What, what comes out is not the same as what you put in. Right. I think of like the 400 years of slavery and the 40 years in the wilderness as being compared to the 40 weeks of gestation of humans mm -hmm. and and then I think about like the stretch marks on a pregnant woman, which in a way are like Kintsugi, where you see through this period of growth, there are scars. My son has some too, as he's mm -hmm. grown quickly, he, mm -hmm. has, he has stretch marks on his arms from mm -hmm. how rapidly he grew. Wow. So I think about this as well. Growth and development leave scars, but my son actually loves his scar tissue because it shows that he grew. Mm -hmm. Many women have painted their stretch marks in a kintsugi type fashion with metallic glitter paint. Huh. Um, to kind of beautify like the growth that they experienced through having a child, starting a family, those transitions. So they're also beautiful. I think that's a good place to pause too. It is. All right. Excellent conversation. So far wandering. Through the, the meat bar of, I don't know, our minds. <laughs> indeed, indeed, always. All right, so from the Geniza. So I, I have something to offer. I don't know if you do, if you do, great. I watched something very old the other mm. night because I was curious. And it has to do with recovering lost memories. I remember when I was a kid on Disney on Sundays, it was called Escape to Witch Mountain. Came oh out, yeah came out in 75 i remember the two kids i remember that the girl had a metallic purse with two stars on it that has a map i remember little bits and details and so i'm looking through disney plus the other day i go i'm gonna see if it's as good as i remember i remember loving it i remember just absolutely being 
take it with the thing. I read the books. And so sorry, we watched it. And it was, you know what? It was pretty good. The kids were young, maybe like eight and 10. They were very good young actors. They were well-directed. They have psychic powers, telekinetic powers, even like ability to like see the future. Some terrifying powers that kids shouldn't have. And they find a map in her double star purse. And they basically, they're orphans. They're adopted by this man who thinks they can help him become richer than he already is. And they escape to Witch Mountain. And they basically slowly recover their memories from the trauma of their crash landing on Earth when their ship crashes. And so they piece together this memory of the crash landing, and I think they're near drowning. Slowly, slowly, as they closer to where their uncle is waiting for them. They come from a binary star system, their planet exploded, and they're refugees. And they're looking for a new home. So it's very on point for our theme. And so they go back to their uncle and then they send the guy who got them there, go find more of the children. So they're all kind of like kids all over the planet. Refugees kind of like slowly coming home. Which leads to two more movies. So it was good. The special effects weren't bad for 75, mostly practical. You know, a couple like, you know, play with the video to make a cat wink. But it was it was nice watching it again. So that's my From the Geniza Escape to Witch Mountain on Disney+. Plus. Amazing. Yeah, no, I I definitely want to watch it again. And I really relate to your description, not only with this movie, but others where it's like you just have those like little I'm like, I have like mental images of like what it looks like. And as you're talking, I'm remembering more. And I think also it's on my mind because I also at some point recently was browsing through Disney Plus to see, oh, what's on here? What are the old movies that are on here? They're all I saw there. that and I like saved that to my, you know, watch list to go back to. I definitely want to go take a take a rewatch of that at some point, maybe with my kids because they're young and would enjoy it. And I, as you were talking also, it kind of made me think about, um, there was something that you said that made me think of the movie Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, which I watched so many times when I was a kid and I was like, you it's do. been so long uh-huh. and definitely want to go back and, and watch that because it's just so good. I have like like the magical incantation kind of in my head, but I can't remember all the syllables. Like something that animates. That's exactly what I almost can't quite remember. It's Angela Lansbury. It's the dad from Mary Poppins. They're both great. And it was, it was fun. And I watched it a dozen times easily as a kid. I I don't even know. I mean, we had it on video and I, I have no idea how many times I watched it, but it's like, there's so many things where I'm like, Oh, my kids, they need to watch this and they need to watch this. And thinking about how funny it is, like, I'm wondering, you know, which cultural productions are going to continue to get passed down through the ages because that movie was clearly my parents decided that we needed to see it because it was before, you know, my and my siblings time. And right after Mary Poppins. Was it or was it a little bit later? I thought it was like maybe early 70s even or well the dad from Mary Poppins doesn't look much older. Maybe he aged well. I don't know. Some people Angela Lansbury basically looked the same for like She's, yeah, 40 she was, 50 yeah. years. The movie, one of those, I think, unappreciated Disney gems. 
from that time period? I don't know. I feel like it's like it's like a a cult classic though. It's like ever people know it. Mm -hmm. and it I don't know. Have you watched Tron ever? <sighs> I did at some point. It has so many interesting religious themes. Mm. It's basically about faith, atheism. Um, is there a world bigger than ours? It was the early 80s, you know, computer programmers create this computer world that unbeknownst to them basically creates a whole world within our world that human beings can actually inhabit and go to mm -hmm. and have special powers because we're we're the users, not the programs. Do you believe in the users? No, man, they're not real. You know, it's very, it's very heavy-handed theology. But interesting. So I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm going to have some homework between now and the next time. I have to go back and, and revisit <laughs> some of the, the these, like, movies that I, you know, vaguely remember pieces of or haven't watched in a long time so that we can have some good from the Geniza material. Good breaks from writing sermons. Good sermon writing breaks. And that was, a, you know, a good segue into what I was about to say next, which is that the next time we record will probably be in the new Jewish year. Yes, indeed. So we're, we're looking forward to what new insights might enter into our consciousness in the in the new jewish year indeed yeah all right well that concludes our seventh episode of sacred realms from ruin to renewal thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this conversation about sci-fi and fantasy through a jewish lens and come back to hear more our next episode will appear sometime early after rosh hashanah after mid-september and the theme will be a surprise. Yes. And if you liked this episode, please leave us a positive rating or review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever you prefer to find your podcasts. Thank you for all of our positive reviews and emails so far. And please feel free to write to us if you have anything that you'd like to, to bring to our attention. We'd love to hear from you. Indeed. This episode was written and edited by me, Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. And me, Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. This episode was recorded on Zoom and edited using Descript. Our email address is sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. May the Mafarshim be with you. Shana Tova. Shana Tova. A good new year. <laughs>